Welcome once again to the MillaryInFishers.com podcast. My name is Larry Lannon. Glad to have you with us and very happy to have with me Matt Kegley. Matt Kegley is the Assistant Superintendent of Teaching and Learning for Hamilton Southeastern Schools. So, Matt, uh, it's been a long time. It's a long time that uh, I haven't had you on a podcast yet. It's great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here, Larry. Thanks for having me. You know, I was thinking before I, I, we started when I was making notes on, on this podcast that you and I had many, many conversations when you were principal at HSC High School about a number of subjects. And I remember most, uh, I was uh, work, doing a volunteer project, helping out a teacher, and you were there as well. And you and I were talking about uh, how you had planned on on trying to get your PhD, your, your doctoral degree. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I'm still amazed, and I want you to talk about this. How in the world can you at that time be a principal of a high school, then later become a central office administrator, do all that, and also work on your doctoral degree at the same time? Yeah, that's a that's a, a great question, and I'm not really sure. I have a very um, loving and forgiving spouse um, who has certainly um, um, allowed me the time to pursue um what I think is a, you know, I see it as a professional accomplishment as well and helps add certainly to uh, my ability to do my, my job. Um, you know, I started in trying to be succinct as possible. I started my, the process of obtaining my doctorate, um, uh, many years ago. And actually when I became, when I transitioned from the principalship at Riverside junior high, to the principalship at HSC High School, I actually had almost everything done but my dissertation. And um, I I decided to take a break so that I could get my feet on the ground relative to the demands of that job. Um, And knowing that, you know, I was going to a building of 30 3,200 kids and, you know, 150 staff members and, and, uh, a lot, lots and lots of outside commitments. And, um, you know, one year turned into two, turned into three, turned into more than that. And, um, um, it was actually, and I have to give her a lot of credit when Dr. Combs was hired, um, she was getting to know all of us. And I mentioned that I had, um, everything done, uh, but my dissertation. And she said, wait a minute, you, you have everything done, but your dissertation. And I said, yeah. And she said, you're finishing that. I, I refuse to let you. And, you know, I think that it's, it's funny and it makes me laugh and it's a great memory of her um, and the influence she had. But I think it speaks broadly to the fact that even as adults, we need other adults to help us um, sometimes encourage us along to goals that we have. And, um, and so I'm thankful for her added encouragement and um, it got me jump started back in the program. And actually I finished, um, I'm coming up on a year. So during quarantine, I actually, I actually <laughs> finished and wrapped it all up and did my defense via zoom. So, uh, got a, got a, it's got something to remember the whole COVID experience by as a student. I'll ask you more about that later on in the podcast, but I want to sure. move to, uh, something that's going on now, and I know that all the answers aren't in, but I, I'm going to ask you a question about it because virtual learning is now going to be offered next school year for those who choose it, and the final decisions have not been made. I understand that. But I want you to address this because people I talk to in the community, they always say, well, this should be very simple. All you need to do is find some teachers who want to virtually teach and some families and students who want to virtually learn. 
That should be very simple, right? Well, I've been going to school board meetings, and I've heard your discussion with the board members, and this is anything but simple. So there's a reason it hasn't been done yet. So just talk about the complexities that you faced in trying to set up this virtual learning program for families who choose that next school year. Yeah, that, I mean, it, it is, there is much more to it than, than on the surface. Um, part of it is um, with the plan that we are considering moving forward with, um, with pairing completely virtual students with a teacher that would teach completely virtual, which is a little different than what we've been doing this year. Um, you know, the big unknown right now is how many students and families will want to take advantage of that opportunity. And so that has, depending on what that number is, has a big impact on how many teachers you're going to need to pull off of that kind of experience. And um, logistically, where that where that can become a real big factor is um, you may have a group of teachers who desire to teach virtually and that's great, but you, your need may exceed the number of people willing to do it. And um, when that happens, then you have to start looking at, well, how do we, how do we get these folks that we need to fill in these gaps of open, open places. And so that might mean, um, pulling teachers from buildings where um, maybe their percentage of virtual learners is very low. So there needs to be uh, in-person teachers in that building. And yet this teacher it might be required to go teach virtually. And so then you start touching other buildings because you have to backfill that teacher. And, and that's where it starts to get very complicated. And then if you think, if you fast forward to say the end of first semester and you think about the idea of um, having, giving families the opportunity for their child to come back in person, say for second semester, you have to unwind that whole process. And um, it, one of the reasons it, it adds a lot of, of disruption. And that was one of the reasons why in the midst of the fall, we didn't choose to do a virtual only teacher paired with virtual only kids because we already had established relationships by that point with our teacher and, and students. At the secondary level, it, there's this added layer of um, of varying courses um, are the, the options that our kids have, particularly in our high schools, are very vast. And um, thinking about how you would try to pair virtual only um, students in, say, a world history class with a teacher who can teach world history and fit that into their schedule so that they it's it's just a virtual class and not any in-person students also, um, that starts to get weighted with complications because you have to remember on one side of the fence, you have a, a student who's taking potentially seven different classes throughout the day paired with a teacher who is teaching at least six classes and trying to uh, make sure that every kid um, gets where they need to be is a big logistical hurdle. So that's just, that's just one of the big pieces that is, um, I guess, facing us as we, as we start to plan this. Yeah. I think the, the two things that came, I came away from all the discussions. So number one, you'd, uh, it's fine if all the staff is volunteering, but if you don't have enough volunteers and you have more families, you know, how do you bring you know, people to that? 
And the second thing is just what you mentioned last. Uh, it could limit what that high school student can take in high school because you may be more limited in your classes that are available to you. So there's, right. and I know that you have a school board work session uh, set up soon to get some guidance from the board so you know how to go. Because you had planned on having a plan ready at what uh, just a few weeks ago, and that's when the complexity came up, and you needed uh, to know a little more guidance. So. For those people who may be interested in a virtual learning option, you should have the answers to those questions they have, I would think, in the next few weeks, correct? We're very hopeful because we know that we need, um, we're putting that timeline on ourselves, actually, because we know that we need enough time to be able to um, survey our community to see the level of interest. And, and I shouldn't say interest. I guess what I should say is commitment because we're not looking for um, people to say, I might want to do this. We're looking for people who are saying, I'm going, my child is going to do this. Um, because we will not be able to plan for staffing accordingly if we don't have hard numbers. Um, so yes, um, we're hoping in the next few weeks we have an answer and then we're rolling the survey out to get commitments from families. You know, the last thing you want to do is make a change in something that's where you've already decided, but there are a couple of those items that were at the last school board meeting. One of them had to do with start times. We had a pretty good discussion about start times not that many months ago, and now uh, you had to go before the school board and say, well, we may want to make some changes. Explain what changes you're proposing, and they haven't been enacted yet. They will probably be voted on at the next board, regular board meeting, but explain what the changes are and why the administration feels are necessary. Yeah, the, the changes um, are for um, the start and end times to a student day. And um, we're, not, we're not proposing any change to the elementary day, um, but we are uh, proposing um, changes to the high school tier and to the intermediate junior high tier. Um, as your listeners may know, this year was our first year with a three-tier bus system. But next year, we will actually flip some positions in those tiers. So right now, our elementary is, is last on the tiers. Next year, they will be first. High school will be in the middle. Intermediate and junior high will be the last tier of the, of the day, of the morning and afternoon routes. Um, and as we continue to talk um, uh, about that and plan for next year, at the same time, we were having conversations about um, uh, shortfalls in funding through our, through our, um, lower enrollment that we had this year. And, um, our transportation director, Zach McKinney came to us and said, you know, I think that there are some potential, uh, efficiencies that I can still gain, um, which he has seen some of this year by having a three-tiered system. We've had some drivers, um, that have, um, because of concerns, a lot of them relative to COVID, um, who have decided to retire or resign from their, their driving positions. And when those have happened, because we're in a three-tier system, Zach has been able to absorb those losses and um, still be able to deliver on the routes. And um, we're looking at some, some potential further efficiencies 
into next school year that would allow us to also see some continued cost savings. So that's kind of where the whole idea started. Um, and so we just kind of, he, he has in his mind, um, uh, and he's figured this out, that the amount of time that he needs between each tier in order to be able to deliver students or get students to school or deliver them home and be able to make it to their next tier. And so what we've gone to the board with, um, went with last week was um, a reduction of 30 minutes to the high school day and a reduction of 15 minutes to the junior high intermediate day. So, and, and that's not enacted yet. Uh, school board takes it up next time. And, and as I understand it, it all is tied to the budget and efficiencies with bus transportation. Yes. So that was the driver there. The other one, uh, other item you talked about at the last school board meeting dealt with the school calendar. Uh, there is a proposed change for the school calendar for the coming school year and the year after that. The coming school year had already been approved. So just explain what changes administrators are are proposing for the school year coming up on the calendar. Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, the board had already approved um, a couple years ago the calendar for next school year. Um, typically, we do those in two year phases. And so we'll we'll bring two successive years to a board to approve. And then and then we post those to the website. And it, and it really helps families plan uh, long term vacations, things of that nature. Um, the reason that we came asking for a revision to next year's already approved calendar is because um, built into that plan are two flex days. Now, when we were creating that calendar and the one we're, we're living this year, um, we had come off um, uh, having um, e-learning days as a mechanism for um, when we needed to, an emergency closure. In most cases, that's relative to weather. And um, we had had, we had come off a winter, I guess that would be maybe three or four winters ago, where we had, um, I want to say three or four days in a row of no school. And um, in conversations with our uh, administratively and with our um, teachers association, um, we really kind of thought that the that that length of time doing e-learning was maybe three days in a row was about the limit. And then we felt like, okay, if there's after three consecutive days, we really just need to not have school. And then we'll pick up when we're back in person, but we'll throw, we'll put in some flex days into the calendar so that we could use those as makeup days. So we weren't tacking them onto the end. All that now seems very, I don't know. It, it makes me chuckle a little bit because we've been living in this through this year, um, not not even e-learning. We've been we've been doing live instruction um, with students um, every day, and so now this idea of needing to include makeup days um, when we know different ways in which we can deliver instruction, those really aren't needed anymore. So, um, that's the biggest piece that that's what really caused us to go back and revisit. We had two days in second semester as makeup days that we've asked that those be removed and, um, and that will allow us, uh, and then we put some parameters in place for what we will do if there's an emergency closure and what that format of instruction will be. And nobody's vacation will be 
harmed by this change. All the that uh, the spring break and the winter break that's all that's all going to be the same. But you did mention something that I think everyone needs to know. And when we're talking about word crafting, words uh, uh, can be very important. You pointed out to the board and everybody else was watching that there's a difference between e-learning and virtual learning. Explain that briefly. Yeah, we we see e-learning as um, as more of a um, uh, to popularize terms that we've we've kind of adopted into our our vernacular this year, uh, more of an asynchronous uh, endeavor, more of a passive nature, um, and that would look like our teachers posting um, work or assignments on. Um, our students canvas pages, which is our, our student management or not our student management system, but our but their their educational uh, landing place and that those would go there and and students would access those and then they could potentially reach out to teachers via email, um, but there wouldn't be an expectation of live uh, live instruction necessarily, which is really what we see virtual learning or virtual instruction as which is is um and that's why we've we've um said that would be for our secondary students would they would follow their daily what would be their daily schedule for that day and at the at the appointed times they would um you know uh, zoom in if if zooms the platform we're using zoom into the classroom uh, the virtual classroom and the teacher would deliver instruction um, as if they were all in front of that teacher in person but it would just all be done virtually i have a question related to all that because the pandemic has made life very tough on a lot of people the families had a tough time the students had a tough time and absolutely i know a lot of teachers and the teachers had a very difficult time doing their jobs this school year. From an administrator's point of view, how have you tried to deal with all that stress on the system? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't start any comments, as you point out. Uh, certainly all people have had challenges during during the pandemic and, and the thought of coming back to school as we did, um, you know, our teachers took on responsibilities and learned new ways of instruction that they had no no professional development for prior to this year, um, and they jumped in and they and they did what they needed to do and um, and they've delivered and they've shown up every day for our kids, and um, it, it, I, I in no way want to want to minimize the efforts that they've put out there. Um, I have not been doing it. They have. And um, I have had the opportunity to watch that in action and understand and try to understand the difficulties of um, trying to teach students in front of you while at the same time trying to teach students on a device and and, um, being able to deliver the level of instruction that our teachers are accustomed to delivering to our students and families. And that's been a huge challenge. And so, you know, that, that in and of itself has been aware on the system in the sense that, you know, we've had to, we've tried to provide some professional development when we could, we've had to, um, you know, probably have a lot more meetings to address concerns and, and issues that have cropped up along the way. And, and we still have not gotten to a place where I would consider it to be 
perfect and and certainly wouldn't be anything that I think we would, if given the chance to plan even better, which is what we're trying to do for next year for virtual, um, we would probably do it a different way. And so that's what we're looking at. Also at the last school, you were busy at the last school board. I was. Because you had something else you had to deal with, and that was the final approval of something that's been in the works for quite a while, a memorandum of understanding with the city of Fishers and Hub and Spoke. Um, this a new term has kind of been used in relationship to that MOU, experiential learning. I've heard it enough. I think I know what it means. Maybe not everybody listening or watching knows what it means. So i kind of incorporate a definition of that into this response. How does this agreement that was just approved uh, open up new learning experiences for the students at HSC schools? Well, I think it um, it further solidifies, in my opinion, the, the great relationship that we have with the city. And um, we already have some experiences such as our, our um a nature first program out at Ritchie woods, um, that, that we can, and, and then this would be another one that, um, and it goes along, although it's not with the city, but our, our, our fourth grade experience with Connor Prairie would be an akin, a uh, very similar situation to that. Um, it just solidifies this idea that we're, we're going to try to when possible, take learning beyond the classroom walls. And, and that's really, in my eyes, what experiential learning is. We, we can learn concepts and we can learn ideas and in the classroom, those are great. But when we have an opportunity to uh, go out into the community and see, see what we've been learning come to life, um, that gives us a chance to, it gives the students a chance to really, you know, bring that learning to life. And so it's, um, this is an opportunity uh, for our fifth grade to take a, a STEM unit and um, go into the makerspace area at Hub and Spoke. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm imagining we have it. We have um, Dr. Lone, who's um, our elementary director of education, is working with a team of teachers um, to develop what the, that, that units would ultimately look like, but giving all of our fifth graders an opportunity to have that experience. And then in, in that MOU, we also, um, I guess, kind of put placeholders in for other experiences. We don't know what yet those might be with the city. But um, again, I think it solidifies um, not only what we've been doing, but gives us um, an opportunity to continue to look to create with the city other opportunities for, for the students of Hamilton Southeastern Schools. Now, we're recording this on April 21st, the day before there was a, a school board work session and your name was invoked. Uh, <laughs> Not in a bad way, but Nataki Pettigrew, who's involved in equity and inclusion, mentioned the fact that she had been working with you on some of the uh, people who are involved at the school buildings with that program. So talk about your involvement with making sure that you have coaches and others in the school buildings who are dealing with this issue of equity and inclusion. Well, I've been, um, I mean, on a, on, I guess, on a personal slash professional level with HSE schools, I've been um, a part of uh, our, our district equity teams since I came to the district. And, um, and then as building principal in two separate buildings have worked with our equity coaches in those respective buildings and have always been 
um, you know, very, I've tried to always be very supportive of the work that our equity coaches are doing. And um, Nataki's presence here um, with the, with the district um, is uh, we have already felt the benefits of her, of her being on our team and are appreciative to have her. And um, I've just been, you know, trying my best to help, help her out as much as possible in terms of acclimating to the district in her role and um, trying to give where appropriate history and what we've been doing with equity coaches and helping to coordinate if needed. Um, I certainly don't want to, I appreciate, I guess, her bringing my name up, but she's been certainly at the forefront of the work since she's been here and has been doing a great job. We are again, recording this the day before a new superintendent of schools is is to be announced. Uh, nobody's leaked it to me, just so you know. But it's uh, been kept very close to the vest by those who know. So obviously uh, we can't talk about that today. But in general, I'm asking the question a little more broadly. Uh, your expectations from the transition. Uh, Dr. Alan Borf, who's been superintendent for several years, will be retiring at the end of June. So there'll be a transition period. Uh, for the next several weeks. So uh, how would you envision that transition going? Well, I, I feel like our, our role, uh, my role is to um, uh, support and, and try to acclimate our new superintendent um, to uh, and do whatever I can to help that, I guess, transition process go as smooth as possible. There will be um, certainly some um, I'm sure uh, a list of questions and, 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 you know, wanting to learn opportunity for, for understanding about what we're doing here in the district and um, initiatives that we have going, um, uh, you know, hot topic items that, uh, that are, you know, that we're attending to. Uh, from my viewpoint, I, I feel like it will be important to, to help to, um, uh, help our new superintendent understand from from a teaching and learning perspective um, where things are currently in terms of curriculum and and where we would like to see things go. Many of the things we've talked about just in this podcast are are things that um, you know we would want to talk about initiatives that we have going, um, ideas for future initiatives, and and it's a learning opportunity for us too to understand um, how the how this person would like to lead. Um, our building and our district and um, and try to do everything we can to make that person as successful as possible. I said I would wait for the end uh, to, to ask this question, but I've always had a lot of uh, respect for people who get that PhD degree. It is a <laughs> rough process. You and you mentioned the, the, the word dissertation. What that really means for people who don't know is you're essentially writing a book or the equivalent of writing a book. Sometimes they're even published at times, uh, and you have to defend it before a group of other PhDs. Uh, and I, I don't know if it was easier or harder to do it on Zoom, but that was the way you normally it's done in person. So I always try to ask people when it's been in recent years, what was the subject of your thesis? So um, I I have a real passion for for high, for building principles. Um, um, it was it was absolutely in in all of my areas of of um, in my educational career. It was a position that I always um, valued. I loved being a building principal, and um, I loved the relationships that I was able to. I think what I liked so much about being a building principal was I loved the interaction with. Um, doing everything I could to support the adults in the building and make them better at their job, 
while also having that contact with with students. Um, and so uh, uh, principles in Indiana were the focus of my dissertation. And, and specifically, I was looking at um, some uh purposeful practices that Robert Marzano, who has been a longtime educational researcher uh, nationally, is a national speaker and has written many, many books. Um, he highlighted some responsibilities in the early 2000s that he felt were the, the most important for a principal to undertake, that they had the most influence on. And so I looked at um, my, uh, the, the principals in Indiana who um, took my survey, I, I sent out a survey that compared um, their ability to carry out these responsibilities. And then I, I cross-referenced that with the achievement level um, relative to the, these schools being four-star schools, which is a designation that at one time the state um, uh, used as a designation for high-performing uh, schools across the state. And so it was a, it was a really um, fulfilling um, opportunity. I mean, uh, one of the things that I was always given as a piece of advice was um, do, a, do something, whatever your topic is for your dissertation, make sure it's something that you um, have passion and interest in and that you really enjoy or else it makes it 10 times harder to finish. Because, uh, and that's so true, because I can't imagine if I was writing something that I didn't care a whole lot about, um, how, how much longer it would have taken me. Well, that's interesting. And, and you're right, people do need to have a passion for what they write, because otherwise it's, it's, it's a pretty serious slog. It's hard enough as it is. We're out of time now. I do want to give you one opportunity. We've talked about a lot here. Anything you would like to add before we wrap this up? Um, you know, I'm I'm um, just really looking forward and excited, um, uh, not because Dr. Borst retiring, but but change brings about opportunities to continue to learn. And so I'm excited for our community and for our school system as we have this leadership change um, at the top of our organization, that it's an opportunity for all of us to learn from whoever this person is and from this person to learn from our district. And hopefully we um, are all moving in the same direction, which is continue to provide excellence in education for our students. We spent this time with Matt Kegley. He's the assistant superintendent of teaching and learning for the Hamilton Southeastern Schools. And as he mentioned earlier, he's had principalships at Riverside and several years at HSC High School. So his connection with HSC schools goes back a number of years. So Matt Kegley, thanks for your time. A great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for having me.